The following presentation was recorded during Teachers Week at Faith Builders. More information on Faith Builders events at fbep.org. Over the years, what is that one person whose name rises to the top when you think of a great teacher in my experience? Now think of that for just a moment. Now here's the tough question. Do you all have someone? Yeah, I have. Here's the tough question. I want you to think about Did they make an impact on you because they loved you well or because they taught you well? See, what I'm curious here, I was talking about this with a friend last evening and we we, uh, disagreed just a little bit about how this might turn out. you see, I'm asking, was that person, did they impact you primarily through your head or through your heart? Okay, was it because they loved you well or because they taught you well that you think they rise to the top as one of those great teachers in your experience? Now, I know that these distinctions are blurred, and they should be. But I want you to try to come down on one side or the other here. You think you know. Okay, what I'd like to do is those of you who said, this is a great teacher because they loved me well, raise your hand. Okay, those who say it was because they taught me well, raise your hand. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay, you know what? This is worth getting a count. Uh, this may settle a wager. Now, yes. <laughs> okay, those of you who said uh, that it's because they taught you well, raise your hand. And let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I got 18, Richie. How many did you get? Were you counting? Okay, let's go with the elements. How many for... They loved you well. Raise your hand. Okay. Looks like that was closer to 23 to 25, somewhere in there. That's closer than I thought it would be. What we're going to do here during this session for the next four days is to think together about how do we train the mind of our young people? How do we do well there? Now, obviously, if you're going to uh, be one of these teachers that really impact, it looks like the preferred way is through the heart. But that's not what we're going to talk about here. We're going to talk about how do you get to people's minds? How do you train minds? And what I'd like to do in these next four sessions is to think with you about some of the tools that we can use to make good thinkers. You know, Thomas Edison said 5% of the people think. He said 10% of the people think they think. And the other 85% would rather die than think. Well, we want to do better than that in our classrooms. We want to find ways that we can get 70, 80, 90, even 100% of our students think. Now, how do we do that? What I plan to do today is to give you three categories of learning that should be in every unit you teach. Every time you get in front of your classroom and you're mapping out a lesson or whatever, there's three categories of learning 
That should be a part of what you do. Now, these are categories that if I asked you to think of them right now, you'd come up with them. They're obvious. But I find that it's easy when I'm teaching to focus in on one of the three rather than incorporate all three when I'm teaching a unit. Okay, so I want to think with you about three categories today, three categories of learning that need to be incorporated in every lesson, every unit that you teach. And I guarantee you that if you include these three categories on a regular basis, you will train minds. And so it's going to be three categories, and along with those three categories, and we're going to look at what you as a teacher need to do in those categories. We're going to look at what the students need to be doing in those categories, and then I want to give you five questions that are going to help you unlock your material uh, in each of those in each of those ways. So let's get started. You know, Richie, I have a uh, a handout back there at the uh, the copier. Should be ready. If you would get that for me and. Uh, this should make it a little bit easier for you to take notes. We're going to think together about the house of thinking and how we erect that. One summer when I was going to University of South Carolina, I was trying to figure out what to take, what to put in that blank slot in my schedule. And uh, there was just no class that immediately grabbed me, so I was looking over some unconventional territory, and I saw a course in Shakespeare. thought, oh, why not? You know, this is going to be a waste, but I needed an elective anyway, so I'll take this course in Shakespeare. Don't you know, I wind up with a teacher who lived, breathed Shakespeare. I mean, this was his whole life. And so for the next five weeks, on two hours a day, I was immersed in Shakespeare, and there was a man who knew, who knew Shakespeare like we should know our Bibles. I mean, that guy, we had these big tomes, the complete works of, of Shakespeare. And he would, he would be in there and he would be reading along and he would say, you know what, if you're going to understand this, you need to understand another passage from Shakespeare. It's in Hamlet, let's see. It's in, you know, Act 4 of, on page 325 fifth line, you'll find an illusion that you have to know in order to understand this. The man knew his facts. He knew Shakespeare so well that, you know, I found myself starting to get excited about Shakespeare. And But not only did he know the facts of Shakespeare well, but he was able to get us pulled into thinking about Shakespeare in good ways. I still remember the day he led us in a discussion on, guess what, the music that young people listen to, and it comes right from Shakespeare, because one of the kings in Henry VIII, the play Henry VIII, one of the kings is complaining about, you know, this is 500 years ago, complaining about the music that young people listen to. And so we begin to think about that and how young people and old people interact. Here was a man that because of his mastery of the subject and so on was able to get his students thinking. It actually turned out to be one of, the, one of the best courses I've ever taken. Now, what we're going to do here is think about what, what does it take as a teacher to get our students thinking? Now, the first level that I'm going to suggest we need is the level of what we're going to do. We're going to look at several things. We're going to look at the type 
of learning, and I said there's going to be four different or three different types of learning. We're going to look at what you as a teacher needs to do. We're going to look at what the student does. And then we're going to look at some questions that help us develop our lesson plans, that help us to develop our units. Now the first type of learning that we need to engage our students in, if we're going to train thinkers, we're going to train their minds, is we're going to have to help them learn facts. Learn facts. You see, these are the stones by which the house of creativity, the house of learning, the house of beliefs can be built. And so we begin with facts. Now, what does a teacher do in order to teach facts? We'll go to one of our elementary terms. You have to show and tell. You're going to have to show and tell with pizzazz. Now, this tells what we do and how we do it. I believe that's 1D here. Show and tell with pizzazz. Edie Hirsch tells us that the greatest failure of modern education is not giving the raw data needed to think. That's facts. As a teacher, if we're going to get our students thinking, if we're going to train their mind, we've got to give them facts in order to work with. Those are the stones by which they can build. From. Now, what does a student need to do? Two words that are out of favor today. Memorize and recite. Oh, this doesn't have to be boring. There's many ways in which you can get your students reciting, memorizing things that are, that are energizing. One, uh, one way is to, particularly in the elementary grades, is to use chanting uh, as part of the recitation. I know we use a program here in our English. It's called Shirley Method English, in which that's what the students do. They, they learn some chants. That's how they remember some of the key facts that they need to know. You know, how many of you, who can tell me what Laringles Wilder had to do in order to get her teaching certificate. Does anybody remember from reading Little House series? In order to get her, to, yes. Okay, that's right. That's one of the things she had to do. There was, on another occasion, there was something else. She had to give a recitation of American history. And it, if I remember correctly, I think she went for half an hour not talking about American history, but giving a recitation of the key facts of American history. Now, you may want to say, well, you know, anybody can remember, can memorize something, but do they really know it? Well, someone has said that information is no substitute for thinking, and thinking is no substitute for information. Well, she had some of the key facts that would allow her to think. And in modern educational theory, 
this is an area that's often neglected. We say we need to just teach people to think, but we don't give them the raw material, the data upon which to think. And so let's not neglect this in our teaching. We're going to train minds. Every lesson that we have needs to include some facts, some stones that are introduced. Now, some questions that will help us as we're preparing a lesson. One would be, what are the key facts? If we're teaching a lesson in science and geography, whatever, what are the key facts? Now, often we don't do this. We just assume that everything is a key fact. And that's a problem. You got to go through and call that material and find a couple things that are absolutely essential for your students to know. What are the key facts? And then the second question, how can they best be learned? How can these key facts best be learned? Now what I'd like for you to do with me a moment is just to brainstorm with me. What are some ways you found in which students, uh, what's ways you found in order to introduce facts to students and have them learn those facts in ways that are effective? Can you give me some ideas? Yes. Attendance to the chalkboard has them control the digestive tract and legal parts. Do that beginning and end of the unit. Okay. So send them to Blackboard if you're teaching science. And uh, there's some diagrams or something for them to learn. Send them up. Have them draw it both before and after. And they can even themselves see the difference. Okay, good. What else? How can you get them learning facts? Let's just pop up with a bunch of things here. Yes. Flashcards I heard over here. Good. Okay. Introduce a couple. Get them learning those and then add one or two more and a couple more, but keep reviewing everything else that you have. Good. Who said flashcards over here? Do you want to talk about how you use those? Or what, what maybe has been effective? Okay. Okay. Use for math facts. Um, maybe some of the rest of you have used them else. You know what's fascinating? You go to a med school or go to an engineering school and guess what you see? You see guys with big rings all kinds of flashcards on those rings. It's not just something for uh, third graders. Someone else. What are creative ways, ways that you can communicate facts with pizzazz? Okay. Very good. Send the students after their facts. Ask the questions that lead them to facts and let them figure them out. Others. One of my uh, co-teachers put together an American history panorama. And what this was was a list of, I think it's 120 different facts from American history that can be chanted. And along with each of those facts, he put together hand motions that they do for different things. And you learn the entire scope of American history, all the key dates, events, and so on. Uh, you, you learn it, you learn to say them in order, and you have hand motions that help to rivet it in. It's one way. 
of teaching some facts in ways that are captivating and memorable. Any others that you would have? If you have facts to, to memorize, if you, there are facts that the students need to learn, put some effort into how to communicate those with pizzazz and also how to get them memorizing and reciting in ways that lock it in. Well, let's move on. Because not only should lessons include the facts, and you know, really, most of the time, maybe this is the one thing we do well, but that's only one part of a good lesson. What else? A second level is the level of concepts. Concepts or ideas. If the facts are the stones, what's happening on this level is learning how the stones fit together. Now I'd like to do just a quick little uh, activity here. I have listed on this overhead four different curriculums. One is suggested by Cicero. One is what was used in the medieval period. One which is suggested by Comenius. And one which is reflective of a modern school. And I put Bible down there in parentheses because that would often be included in a Christian school. Now, what I want you to do is to compare these. What similarities do you see before, between these four curriculums that span a several thousand year period? What similarities? Yes. Okay, they all have language study. What else do they all have? They all have math. Now, there's a little difference in some terminology here, and maybe we'd need to clarify some of that, but do you see anything that is different? Or what are some big differences that you see? Rhetoric is missing in the modern school. Okay, rhetoric is missing in the modern school. So that's this, 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 but we don't see that over here. Is there anything else? Now here's a problem of terminology perhaps. But there's something else that's missing in the modern school that you have in the other three. Okay. And that is going to be the term logic here, dialectic, and dialectic. With Dewey, logic was dropped as part of the curriculum. It's fascinating that some, uh, some modern Movements, particularly in Christian education, are trying to restore uh, logic into the curriculum. This is often called the classical movement in education. But that's something that's missing as a course. Now, it doesn't have to be missing in our classrooms if it's integrated into all the lessons that we teach. Now, that is exactly what we're talking about here when we say concepts, ideas. You see, in facts, we give people the building blocks, but in concepts, ideas, we begin to teach them not only what those blocks are, but how do they fit? Now, the other night, um, 
we were outside. We, our family ate supper outside. And my two uh, oldest boys, they were uh, kind of trying to get a game of wiffle ball up. But they didn't have any base. And so the one was standing there, and he, uh, the other boy was a ways off, and he said, I'm going to run toward home. And uh, where my oldest son was, was home base. But there was no base, you understand. Okay. So the boy come a-running, the younger one, he comes a-running, and he slides in, and he yells, safe! And the older one that's standing there says, out! And the one that slid in said, no, I was safe. And he said, no, you were out. Well, it was fascinating. I'm sitting there looking. Well, there's no base. How do you decide? And you see, that's what we have to do as teachers here is help our students to learn a way of processing information that does it in the context of there being a base, of there being an absolute. We have to help them to think about the rules of the game of thinking. Just like you have to know the rules of the game of wiffle ball if you're going to have peaceful moments. So now what what does a teacher need to do if he's going to teach concepts and ideas? You have to learn to question with precision. Question with precision. Again, this is what you do, that's question. How you do it is with precision. Yaroslav Pelikan, in one of his books, he tells a story of an old rabbi that was asked by one of his pupils. And he said, why is it that you rabbis put your teaching in the form of a question? And the old rabbi shot back, so what's wrong with a question? Well, You see what he was doing. He was teaching to think. And this is the method that Jesus often used. If we're going to get our our students thinking, if we're going to train their minds, we have to become skilled in the art of asking questions. And often we have to learn to ask the unconventional questions. Not the questions that have the obvious answers. The other night, a friend of ours drove past the, uh, the house. Well, we think he did. We don't know. Because we were sitting around the table eating supper, and one of the, uh, one of the children said, Steve Russell just drove past the house. And I just asked, I don't know why the question came to my mind, but I said, what if that wasn't him? Would you have just lied? Well, I was asking my my 10-year-old this. So you said that Steve had went past the house. If it wasn't him, would you have just lied to us? Well, she didn't think so. Uh, Well, it it led into a discussion of what does it mean to, uh, to tell a lie? You mean, and, and after she tried to explain herself, I said, you mean to tell me that you, were t- that you weren't telling the truth, but it wasn't lying? See, if it wasn't him, then you said something that wasn't the truth, but you're saying that that wasn't lying. 
Well, yeah, and so we, we got to talking about that. And he even led us around to asking the question, is it possible to tell the truth and be lying? We, have, we, need, to, we need to learn to ask the questions that get beyond just the obvious answers. Well, now, what do our students need to do? I'm going to suggest three words. They need to ponder. I've learned to ponder. We're asking these kinds of questions. They're going to have to learn to ponder. They need to learn to discuss, and they're going to need to learn to answer. Three activities that we get our students involved in. Remember, what are we doing? We're developing three types of things that need to be in every lesson we teach. Some facts, some concepts, and here we're asking our students, we're asking questions and we're getting them to ponder. We're getting them to discuss. We're getting them to formulate answers. Now, some questions that will help, help to unlock this for us. What are the important ideas? What are the important ideas? And then secondly, what question will lead the student to wrestle with those questions or with those ideas? What are the important ideas, and then what questions can I use to get the students wrestling with those ideas? Now, I want to just give you a clue in here. This is the area that we're going to be spending sessions on. How do we do this? I would like to develop some practical tools for us to use in leading our students on the adventure of struggling and wrestling with concepts and ideas. And so we'll expand that one significantly. I'd like to open it up here, though, for just a moment. What are some, we're not going to answer the question, what are some ways that you found to get students thinking? I would like to brainstorm, though, on the opposite side of this for just a bit. And that is, what are things that we do that hinder this from happening? Yes. To say everything. That's, that's right. Absolutely. If we give all the answers. Hmm. Or to, okay. Too much material, not time for thinking or questions. I'm convicted. <laughs> Others, yes. Okay. What was your first statement there? Okay. Okay. The opposite side of that may be that we don't actually interact with them on thought questions. We say, "Oh, it's a thought question." Um, and therefore, whatever they put is fine. 
rather than actually engaging them and trying to help them understand how they may be thinking wrongly. Good. Someone else? Yeah. That's a problem. We feel like we have to cover the content. Don't have time to think. Thank you. The way we respond to uh, what students have to say, what they're thinking, can either invite or shut down that process. Well, I want you to be thinking about how we do this, because we want to help each other to, uh, to be teachers who inspire our students to think, and think carefully, and think well. And again, that's where we will be going the next several sessions. Facts are input. This is where you input information to students. Concepts and ideas are processing. You take facts and you wrestle with them. You process them. You see how they fit together. But there's another component that needs to be a part of our units, our lessons. And that is the realm of creativity. If facts are the stones for building and concepts are working at how those stones fit, creativity is actually doing something with those stones that's productive and useful. It's actually making the structure. And we need, whenever we teach, we need to give students a chance to do something with what they're learning. And so if this is input, this is processing, creativity is output. What does a teacher do? A teacher who is going to help the students develop in this area will need to coach with passion. What do you do? You coach. Think with me of, uh, say, an Olympic coach, someone who's training a, a, a sprinter, a runner, perhaps. And what do they do? That coach becomes the greatest encourager for that, for that uh, athlete. I mean, they are there pumping them on. You can go. They're the biggest cheerleader. They're also the harshest critic. They're saying, I saw just a little something wrong in your stride. And so they, they will point out where the person needs to change and to grow and how they can do that better. At the, but that's all in the context of saying, you can do it. I'm pulling for you. Go for it. Do your best. And as students, as we give our students opportunities to be creative, this is what we have to do. We have to coach. We're there coaching. You see, a coach doesn't actually do the thing it's themselves. In fact, it's probably frustrating for many coaches because they knew if they were there doing it, they could do a lot better than that person. But no, they're training that person how to do it. That's their job. Their whole point is to get that person to do that thing. And as teachers on this level, that's what we have to do is to stand back and to 
to uh, cajole and encourage and just do whatever it takes to get our students doing well on this area. You know, recently I heard of a very successful teacher. You've probably heard of him, read his books, Howard Hendricks. And he was reflecting back to his schooling experience. And he was reflecting because someone had just complimented him on how, how encouraging Hendricks was as a teacher. And Hendricks says, well, you know, he said, I really can only give what I've been given. And he began to reflect back when he was in school. And he said he had a teacher. His name was Merrill Tenney. He's written a number of books, including a New Testament introduction. But he said he was his teacher in college. And he said, don't you know, when I would go out, he said, some churches would invite me to come and preach. This was Hendricks speaking now. He said, they'd invite me to come out and preach at their church. And he said, I would preach, and I'd look out, and there would be sitting Merrill Tenney. And he said, you know, it scared me. Here was a man, I'm, I'm trying to preach from the New Testament, and here's a man who's given his whole life to the study of the New Testament. He said, I was intimidated, I was scared. But he said, after I'd get done te- preaching, he said he would always come out of his seat and he would come up and he'd say, Hendricks, now that's what I call preaching. Well, you see, that's, that's the coach. He's there encouraging. He's, he's there uh, pushing on his students. So you coach and you coach with passion. Hendricks is the one that said, if you want your students to bleed, you have to hemorrhage. That's the kind of passion we need to bring to this. But what is it, though, that we're coaching? What is it that the students are doing? Three words again. And these are fairly generic. And there's lots of places to go with them. But we get them speaking. We get them writing. We get them drawing. Now, drawing is intended to be much broader than just drawing. This is, you, you get them involved in hearing words spoken, in actually taking ideas and fleshing them out on paper, but then also expressing them artistically. Three different areas that can be included in our lessons if our students are going to think, be trained to think. And a question then, what opportunities, what opportunities can I give my students to respond creatively? As you're approaching a unit in science or math or whatever it is, here are five questions that you can use to make sure that all three levels are incorporated in your teaching. You're you're looking at, are the facts here? Are the facts that they need to know in order to be creative, are they present? Are the important ideas, do I know what they are, and am I leading the students in ways to wrestle with those ideas? And then am I giving the students a chance to respond creatively to what it is that they're learning?
Now, once again, I'd like to uh, just take a few moments and have you talk to me about what are some ways that you have that you involved your students in creative expressions of what they're learning. What are some ways we can do this? What are some ways that you have used? Brandon? Okay, present or recite a poem. Good. Okay. Try to explain what they've learned to someone else. I remember one year teaching science, I picked out 20 different concepts. And I gave them a demonstration for each of those concepts. And then they had to pick like five of them and do those demonstrations for their parents or for a friend or something else and explain what that demonstration was intended to communicate. Jay, you get them involved in, uh, in the process. Okay, someone else. This past year, one of the teachers had uh, the students make, and this was in the elementary, make a poster where they communicated something of the, they were each studying a different country, and they were supposed to make a poster that uh, communicated the big ideas that they were learning about that country. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't realize quite how effective that was. I know that, that my child that was in that class was uh, just all enthused about it and was anxious for me to see the poster and so on. But then I realized later how significant that really was when we, we were taking a uh, uh, trip to, up to Erie. And don't you know, he said, I, I'd, like to, uh, I'd like to take an encyclopedia along and learn about another country in that same way. He said, I'd like to make another poster. It, it had, that process of doing something creative, of creating something, just really opened up the the thrill of learning for him. Other ideas? Yes. Okay. Excellent. Okay, and if you can actually get the students leading that and uh, maybe even prepping, say, for a mini-debate or something of that nature, okay? Yes. Okay, good. It was, would you say that again, please? Okay, within the classroom. I had a fifth grade teacher. I went to public school uh, for up through eighth grade, and I had a fifth grade teacher who uh, was just a master at getting students involved in projects and getting us creating and so on. Uh, she was a black lady. Her name was Mrs. Walker. Uh, she never did learn to pronounce my name correctly. It was always Stevie Blueberry to her. And but you know it was dear old eighty year old black lady who who just 
would uh, get us, get the students excited about what we could be involved in. I, I, as I think back on some of the stuff that she asked me to do, I really wonder about it, if teachers really should do this. Um, I know one time she asked me, Steve, I want you, you really like science, I want you to get up in front of the class and do some, some science experiments. And, um, well, I mean, this was my thing, but the, the, the school had a, a lab and all kinds of chemicals. The thing is, no one used them. And so I just went in and I got a whole bunch of bottles of chemicals and I brought them out, and I set a, had a test tube rack up. I didn't even do these beforehand. I just set the test tube rack up. So what we're going to do today is we're going to pour a bunch of these things together and see what happens. <laughs> That's what we did. But you know, that is one of the key things that got me started in uh, developing a science fair project, which became a huge part of my life for the next several years which was a, a creative experience, okay? So there was a woman that was pushing me to do something on your own. Don't just rely on what, what you're learning in class. Do something. Develop something with it, and so on. I'd like to uh, just develop quickly a, com a computer analogy that goes along with this. You know, if you sit down in front of a computer, you have to give the computer some input before it's going to do anything for you, right? What are the devices on a computer that give the input? Keyboard. Okay, keyboard and mouse. So we can put that here, keyboard and mouse. What does the processing? Well, the CPU or the processor. We'll just put CPU, central processing unit. That's the, that's the brains, that's the insides. How do you see the output? Printer or monitor? Let's walk up through here just quickly one last time. Let's say that we're doing a unit on the Civil War. There are some facts on the Civil War. Let's just pick one out. That could be that the North won. The Civil War, that's a fact. That's a fact that all students should know. Now, what is a concept that maybe students should wrestle with along that line? What about... Why did the North win? See, that's going to start pulling them in to begin wrestling with some ideas here. What would have been different if they had lost? Okay, what would have been different? How would our world today be different if, if they would have lost? Good. Okay, so those are some conceptual types of questions. On, the, on this level then... What could you do? There'd be a variety of ways you could go. You could, um, you could actually ask your students to indicate who they wish would have won and why. If it was the North, why they were glad they did. If it was the South, why they wish the South would have won. 
And of course, in, in order to defend that, they would need to pull in their understanding of the historical issues and so on. Three different areas, facts, concepts, ideas, and creativity. And again, I want to suggest that whenever we teach, not necessarily in a one-hour session always, but across a unit, all three of these opportunities need to be present. Now, I would also just comment that younger students are going to tend to be focusing more down here. Older students should be focusing more up here. But all three, I think, should be present at every level. If we're going to be effective in training the mind of young people, we're going to have to become skilled at giving facts, at showing and telling with pizzazz, of learning to question with precision, getting to the heart of the issues, and learning to coach our students in their creative efforts with passion. For the most current Faith Builders recordings, visit christianlearning.org. And for more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.